Hello and welcome to Now That's an Idea, the podcast focusing on moving forward by embracing the past and living out strong values to cultivate the future. My name is John, I'm here at Northwood University for our first podcast with Making Progress that we're calling Civil Disagreement. It's all about the need to be willing to listen to people we disagree with. It sounds like a very simple concept, but when you dig into it, there's so much of this that we see in our world that there's there's so much to it. It's, it's a great topic to start with. So we're very excited for today's podcast. Our guests on today's podcast are Dr. Dale Matchek. He's the professor and chair of economics at Northwood University and will be the main host for the, for the podcast today. And we're also joined by our very special guest, Dr. Pamela Pereski. Dr. Presky holds a PhD from the University of Chicago, where she was a lead researcher on the New York Times bestseller, The Coddling of the American Mind, and she serves as senior scholar in psychology and human development at the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. She also directs the Aspen Center for Human Development, and she writes a blog for Psychology Today focusing on happiness and the pursuit of leadership. She previously taught at the United States Air Force Academy in the Center for Character and Leadership Development. She is an amazing speaker. She's an amazing, very knowledgeable person. I really hope you enjoy the podcast. I think it's going to be great. So we're going to start off talking about what habits of mind we can use to get along with one another. Hope you enjoy the podcast. First of all, thank you for having me. This is really fun. It's great to be here with you and with Professor Moots, who's waving over there. (laughs) Um, uh, So first of all, tell me what's hard. What is it that you find hard about listening to people that you disagree with? Well, first of all, I, I, I don't like to discover that I disagree with people. Mm-hmm. I, I find that disconcerting. So I find it difficult, especially for people that I want to be friends with. Mm-hmm. I want them to like me and vice versa. Like I said, it, it's somewhat unnerving to figure out that this person is wrong <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> about something very important to me. Yeah. And what, when that happens, what do you think it means about them? That they're wrong. Well, I know I do tend to fall into this trap to think that they are uneducated. I tend to to assume that they have goodwill, mm-hmm. but they just perhaps don't know the don't know the real issue. Mm, they don't have all the information. Yeah. So you think that if they had the information, then they would come to the right conclusion, the conclusion that you have. Right. I think if they. Thought like they should, which is the way I think. <laughs> but then I realized that can't be true. Because yeah. a lot of people I do respect, very smart people, disagree yeah. with me, for sure. Right. And so then then what do you think? At that point, I try to discern what their objective is. So a lot of times, I I find that um, I get in conversations with people who, who seem, they just want to win. Mm-hmm. Okay? So their goal is, it's almost like a contest for them. And I'm not interested in that at Mm-hmm. So what do you do when, when you get into that I kind disengage. Of uh-huh. I, I just disengage. I, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to participate in it. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's really common. I think the thing is that we we sort of frame those kinds of conversations like they're a competition. And um, we're really used to a kind of debater's mindset. And so if we think that we could win that debate, maybe we would engage. If we're not sure that we could win the debate, but we still think we're right, then it's harder to want to be in that kind of conversation. But if we take ourselves out of that kind of paradigm of debate and instead use the conversation as an opportunity to understand, then it's a different game altogether. And then you win 
by having gained more understanding of the other person's position, about the other person's thinking. That's how you win that game. Um, in fact, there's a book out by a couple of friends of mine, Peter Bogosian and James Lindsay, called How to Have Impossible Conversations, which has some really good advice on, you know, a, a multi-step process for how to have these kinds of conversations for understanding. So I highly recommend that that book for people who are interested in, in playing the game of understanding. Right. Um, but, you know, aside from reading that book and using their tips and their, their structure for how to have that conversation, one of the things that I think is helpful is to um, imagine how a really decent person who has all the information and, you know, is completely capable of arriving at a correct conclusion, how that person would come to the conclusion that this person has come to, even though it's wrong. Let's just assume that it's wrong. We'll just stipulate that it's wrong. So how does a person come to such a wrong conclusion if they have all the information and they have all their faculties and they're not crazy and they're not evil. And then you can start to think about what concern might they have. And any position we take, any political position or opinion that we have about the way the world should be or the way things should go, probably has something to do with trying to solve a problem that has something to do with one of those fundamental concerns. And if you can identify where somebody might be looking to solve a problem that has something to do with one of those concerns, then you can relate on a more human level with people who come to what we see as incredibly wrong conclusions. Right. Can Will they respond to that? I mean, if, if I show them that kind of patience and goodwill... Mm-hmm. Um, can I expect to be them to offer the same to me or? Maybe. The other thing that people really, I hear a lot is, well, I'll, I'll engage with people who want to engage in good faith. But if someone doesn't want to engage in good faith, then, you know, then, then there's some expletive that happens in, <laughs> in that conversation. Uh, and so that's, I think, not a productive way of thinking. There's something that, you know, adults used to say when I was a kid was that, just become just because someone else isn't being nice doesn't mean that you shouldn't be nice, right? And nice is maybe not the right framework, but just because someone else isn't being civil doesn't mean that we need to not be civil. Mm-hmm. And this is a, I think the uh, when they go low, we go high. Um, Michelle Obama quote I think works incredibly well. Somebody in the in the session today actually was talking about how the reason for being civil, even when someone else isn't, is because you know yourself essentially as being a civil person that way. Right. I mean, she put exactly like that. But we actually can know ourselves as, a, as the person we want to be by behaving the way we would like to be, yeah. you know, being the way we want to be, being the person that we want to be. But that means being that person in all kinds of situations. It, it's, it doesn't mean using a situational ethic. That would take a pretty strong self-image, a pretty high sense of self-awareness. Not everybody has that. And I think a lot of people might be intimidated, actually, by people that disagree with them. They might want to disengage mm-hmm. just because uh, 
not only is it unpleasant, but maybe they they lack the confidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they have an intuition, but they don't know how to express it, and and so they might um, have a productive conversation, but they choose not to. Mm-hmm. And I I think I've done that sometimes, mm-hmm. or I've assumed that this other person, no way. No way they're going to understand where I'm coming mm-hmm. from. So I'm not even going to give them a chance. And if they don't understand where they're coming from, what are you afraid is going to happen? They're going to judge me. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to measure up. Mm-hmm. I'm not, you mentioned the, the you know how we want to belong. I'm not going mm-hmm. to be right. one of the cool kids. Right. <laughs> so right. I'm vulnerable when I contradict some, what, what somebody has strongly professed. And I right. say, well, wait a minute. I don't see it that way. Do you right. feel the same way if it's if if you're in a group of people who agree with you and one person disagrees? Do you feel like there's more you have more courage in saying what you want to say or if somebody else is is if there are other people who agree with you? Yeah, that helps. Yeah. So that's really interesting because that's where we have problems with self-censorship. Mm-hmm. You know that when people get into a group where they're the only person who holds a view, they're often, or if they think they're the only person that holds a view, they're often afraid to share that view. I was in a class in graduate school, and the professor said, you know, they used to believe in heaven and hell. Nobody believes in that stuff anymore. Does anybody believe in hell? And I looked around. Nobody was raising their hand. Mm-hmm. Raise my hand. And, uh, oh, I felt like such an idiot. You know, everybody's going to think I'm, you know, but, you know, and then the professor felt terrible about it, of course, because he put me on the spot. Yeah. But it would have been much easier for me to keep my hand in my pocket. Yeah. Yeah. You know. And do you see that happen with students now where they self-censor? They do self-censor. Yeah. But they will come to me after class. And they'll say, I was going to say this. Oh. And I said, oh, man, I wish you had said that. Yeah. It is. A, it actually um, might happen on our campus uh, to some extent because, uh, you know, we do have a particular philosophy, some values. And if kids don't feel comfortable with, with that philosophy, mm-hmm. they might feel that they're not free to disagree. They're not mm-hmm. free to express an alternative point of view. As a professor, I try to encourage it. Mm-hmm. But they're worried about what the other students would think. What do you think the other students would think? I mean, is it true that the other students might not want to engage with them or might think less no, of I, them? I, no, I think the students appreciate it when the other students mm-hmm. are, are giving them something to yeah. you know, talk about. So that's the, that's the problem of pluralistic ignorance. That's the problem where the the majority of a group thinks a certain way or people think the majority of a group thinks a certain way. And because nobody's willing to speak up, then, then nobody knows how many other people think the same thing that they do that isn't aligned with the majority view or what they think is the majority view. And that's uh, sort of a, a self-fulfilling, self-censoring process. It, the more the more that somebody has to make a plausible argument for an opposing view, the more they come to understand that perspective, right. and the more that and they that, don't necessarily have to take ownership. Of no, that. no, they don't have to believe it. Right. 
They just have to make a really plausible argument for it. And it has to sound good enough that people would believe that somebody who did believe it would say that. It mm-hmm. can't be a caricature of that belief right. or that idea. Um, it has to be reasonable. You know, it has to be, you know, persuasive to people who would think that, you know. Right. And in just articulating that view, I, I can't remember who did this research, but there's been some research that when people have to articulate a view that they don't believe in and they have to do it in a plausible way, that they come to understand that view better and they modulate their own or moderate their own views and moderate their views about people who hold that view. So that's one technique, one, one sort of practice mm-hmm. that, that can work. But the other thing that happens is when you do that in a class where people are articulating out loud views that other people hold, even if they don't believe them, now they've said it. Now it's out in the space and people have heard it and people are going to be more willing to jump in and add to that and say, well, and there's also this idea or that because now it's safe to say those things. And nobody's going to assume that they necessarily believe it if they say it, because now people who don't necessarily believe it are being required to say it. Well, another reason I think for self-censorship, besides the fact that you might be judged, is a false concern for other people's feelings. Mm-hmm. And there, there is something about being considerate of other people. Right. But is it possible to be so considerate of other people that, you know, you deprive them yeah. of something that, you know, perhaps they could handle some some uncomfortable yeah. belief that maybe they need to understand. Yeah, actually, that's a good point, too. And there's also the idea that we do need to encourage the kinds of mental habits that allow people to withstand the discomfort of hearing those kinds of things so that even if somebody might be sensitive about the view, even if they think it's wrong and that view might be somewhat hurtful, it's important to be able to withstand that discomfort or that hurt and and be able to engage with it so that if it's important to that person to change someone's mind, yeah. they're not going to do it unless they're able to hear the, the view that somebody has. Like, for example, um, a couple of times in my adult life, I heard an expression said out loud in front of me that I had never heard before. And I'm, I'm Jewish, but I heard people say, the, they use the expression, Jew someone down. <laughs> yes. And I'm from the Northeast, so I'd never heard it. Apparently it was a common expression in the South. And both times I said to the person speaking, you know, I'm Jewish. Did, did you know that? And both times the person said, what does that have to do with it? And it turned out that they had been so accustomed to hearing that, that they hadn't actually parsed what the words meant. And it it was actually like when I was a kid, we used to say that someone had gypped us. Oh, yeah. And that's also a slur. And I didn't know that until I don't know how old I was. Not a child. Mm -hmm. So, of course, I'll never say that again because somebody explained that to me. Mm-hmm. But it didn't connect for me that it had anything to do with the Roma people. Right. It, it, I, I didn't know that's where the word came from. So I had some compassion for these people who were using the word Jew and not knowing that it meant the people who were Jewish. Mm-hmm. In fact, one of them told me she thought it was Chew, 
to chew someone down, right? So that's how disconnected those things are. So sometimes, sometimes it's not at all intentional in it. And just by airing it, we're able to come to some understanding and resolve something. Mm-hmm. Well, I know that hearing something that you may find offensive or uncomfortable is uh, happening less and less on college campuses because many college campuses are having speech codes and other uh, other ways of creating what I wouldn't call civil discourse, mm-hmm. but actually, you know, kind of discouraging mm-hmm. civil discourse, in my opinion. Yeah. I know some schools have come out explicitly and said, we're not going to do that, mm-hmm. in particular the Chicago, yep. prominent example. What do you think about uh, the statement that Chicago made regarding speech on campus? And I know some other schools have joined them. Yeah. Is, is that a good idea to to uh, reaffirm? Yeah, it's a great idea. Um, and actually, I should say that I think there are many people who would disagree that, that there's less... Um, uh, uncomfortable speech on oh. campus. I think that um, even when there are more rules about it, it doesn't necessarily mean there's less speech. It just means that it goes underground. But the Chicago statement is, I, I think, a really great way for schools to make the um, public announcement to the outside world and to their students and to their faculty that they are protecting the right to freedom of speech on campus and that they are protecting the right to protest, that they're protecting everyone's right to be heard and they're protecting people's right to listen. Because one of the problems with the kind of distress that some people feel at, um, at, at people coming to campus who they think, um, whose ideas they think are really what they would call problematic and sometimes they call them dangerous, and sometimes they say their words are violence. Um, one of the issues with that is they just try to shut the person down. And the Chicago statement allows for appropriate protest, but doesn't allow for protests to shut down people's ability to speak or listen. Mm-hmm. So that's a really important statement, and lots of schools now have adopted some version i think it's 60 schools now i should i should know this number but if you go to thefire.org um that's the foundation for individual rights in education uh that's their website and you can look up how many students how many uh, schools and which ones have adopted some version of the chicago statement and fire also helps schools to con- to uh customize it you know to construct their own version of it so each version is a school's own version of the Chicago Statement. The original is from the University of Chicago. Um, And um, it's actually uh, a really important statement on principles of freedom of speech and um, the way that a university should operate as a place for the the free exchange of ideas. Yeah, I I don't know where people got the idea that a university is supposed to be comfortable. Uh, It's supposed to be... a a place where you're exposed to different ideas, where you develop your uh, thoughts and test them uh, yeah. in, in a kind of competitive uh, environment for ideas. So Yeah, the thing is that the, the university needs to be a place where people can have 
a collision of ideas can withstand discomfort and can know that they're safe. Wow. This has been a great conversation. I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, you teaching a course uh, on campus for us in the spring and uh, learning more about this important topic. So thank you very much for being here today. Thanks for having me.